Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. St. Louis police are investigating what they believe is a double murder-suicide. Investigators suspect a young mother killed her three-month-old daughter and her husband, then turned the gun on herself. An episode of postpartum depression is suspected as part of that scenario. It's been cited as a factor in many similar murder cases over the years. Joining me in studio to discuss postpartum and perinatal issues are Dr. Cynthia Rogers, a child psychiatrist at Washington University and an expert in perinatal and postnatal depression. Also from Washington University is psychologist Shannon Lenz. Thank you both so much for being with us. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Because uh, these words are likely to come up during the course of our discussion, I'd like to get some definitions out of the way. And, Doctor, I'll start with you. The difference between postpartum depression... Uh, perinatal and postpartum psychosis. Again, thank you for having us today. So postpartum depression and perinatal depression really are sort of describing the same thing. Perinatal depression just means it also includes uh, the time period during pregnancy. So that's what those two terms mean. Now, postpartum psychosis is a very rare disorder, thankfully, occurring in about one out of a thousand women that is characterized by psychotic symptoms, meaning delusions, which are fixed false beliefs, or hallucinations, usually auditory hallucinations. On some of these murder cases that have been uh, that have been acknowledged over the years, is it then postpartum psychosis that's probably behind it, or postpartum depression? My knowledge of most of those cases, it typically is postpartum psychosis when the, when it involves uh, delusions that have led a woman to either you know kill her infant or spouse or herself. However, postpartum depression does ha- uh, include high rates of suicide. What is going on, I mean, in terms of what is happening to a a woman during pregnancy and and following uh, delivery? That's a great question, and there's certainly a lot of research that's ongoing trying to figure that out, whether it is uh, caused by hormonal changes that occur during the pregnancy and the postpartum period, whether it's from uh, inflammation, inflammatory processes that may be uh, a result uh, of uh, different things that occurred during pregnancy and the postpartum period. There's also genetics. The number one predictor of whether or not you're going to have perinatal depression is whether you've had a prior history of depression. Uh, and you know, So yeah. I can't say definitively what the cause is, but that it's certainly an area that's of active research. We do, even though we don't necessarily understand the biological causes at this point, we do certainly know what several risk factors are for women who are at greater risk. Well, maybe we'd better list those right now. Sure. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, one of the uh, primary risk factors is a prior history of depression or anxiety. And certainly if you've had uh, perinatal depression with a prior pregnancy, you're at increased risk with your next pregnancy. Various stressors also increase risk. So whether that's financial stress, marital stress, being exposed to uh, early childhood stressful events or stressful events that occur during your life, like intimate partner violence, also puts you at greater risk. Uh, Women who have uh, medically complicated pregnancies, so for instance, gestational diabetes, there's an increased risk of postpartum and perinatal depression as well as uh, women who have medically complicated infants. So infant, uh, women who have infants that are in the neonatal intensive care unit or have other major medical problems are also at greater risk for postpartum depression. And Shannon, as a psychologist, how, how do you see this problem? Uh, we see it the same way. I think <laughs> yeah. uh, Dr. Rogers and I see eye to eye on this. On this. Uh, well, how do you deal with it? Well, luckily, there are a lot of uh, effective treatments for perinatal depression and anxiety, um, starting with medications. Um, Antidepressant medications um, are effective for pre- and postpartum women. However, many women don't want to take medications uh, during this time. 
There's also psychotherapy, counseling or talk therapy. Um, a lot of interventions are effective. So to see someone like a social worker or a counselor or a clinical psychologist. Is it, uh, w- would it be logical to assume that a woman would know that something wrong is going on and therefore she should take some action? Well, I think that women might know that something feels off. I think what gets a lot of women questioning whether they should ask for help is, first of all, um, maybe not knowing if this is just a normal part of having a new baby, feeling tired. Maybe it's just something that will go away in time. Um, Also, the stigma of asking for for help for a mental illness is is very hard for some people. Um, They fear that admitting that something might be wrong, they might get their babies taken away, or um, that people will view them as bad mothers. And so I think that holds a lot of women back from asking for help. Go ahead, Doctor. I was just going to say that that is actually one of the reasons why we feel screening for perinatal and postpartum depression is so important. There's a misconception, I think, that if a woman is struggling, she'll go to her doctor and she'll report the symptoms that she's having. But in fact, research has shown that that happens in less than half the cases. And so one of the things that we do as part of the Washington University Perinatal uh, Behavioral Health uh, Service is screening. And we do it throughout the medical center, both during pregnancy and during the postpartum period, so that women, we don't have to rely on women feeling comfortable sharing those symptoms. And the other thing we do that I think is really important is, uh, and you know, one of the reasons why Shannon and I are here today, is providing education about what this yeah. is. So even women that we see that don't have symptoms, we think it's really important that they understand what the symptoms are, so that if at some point during their pregnancy or during the postpartum period, once these things start happening, they don't think, you know, I'm going crazy or I'm a bad mother, but they understand, oh, this is what they told me might happen, and so I need to, you know, tell my doctor and get some help. What does screening involve? So a good screening would involve um, a healthcare professional. It doesn't have to be a doctor. It could be a social worker or any um, nurse in the clinic asking questions about the symptoms of depression and anxiety that they're experiencing, and then providing education about the results of the screening and resources in which to follow up on um, if the person has any psychosocial needs, so um, help with housing or help with Uh, providing food or transportation or just ways to um, get to the clinic to seek out further treatment. And screening is is recommended now by uh, both the U.S. Preventative uh, uh, Task Force as well as by the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics. So they're they're all saying that this is something that's important that needs to happen during both pregnancy and the postpartum period, and it's really incumbent upon all of us that are providers to do that. Well, I read your op-ed the other day, and and the... uh, uh, the organizations you mentioned say the screening should happen several times. It shouldn't just be one, once and done. Exactly, because you're, the woman is at risk, as I mentioned before, throughout pregnancy and throughout the postpartum period. And we say the postpartum period, we know that symptoms can occur as late as 12 months or even 18 months after the birth. So it's important that uh, practitioners are always on the lookout and can, you know, screening doesn't necessarily mean what I do as a psychiatrist sitting down with some, or Shannon as a psychologist sitting down and talking to somebody for 30 or 45 minutes. There are short tools of, you know, five to 10 questions that practitioners can use that can really help identify if a woman is having symptoms. What might some of those questions be? So they ask, uh, you know, whether you're more sad than normal, whether you're not able to enjoy yourself as much as you used to. Uh, Some of them ask about sleep and appetite. Others, especially during pregnancy, skip those questions because those often are off uh, for a woman that's pregnant. They ask about symptoms of anxiety. Uh, And importantly, they also ask about 
questions about suicide and whether or not someone's having thoughts of wanting to kill themselves. Shannon, if, if a woman answers these, um, these questions positively, I guess, or in, in, in a way that arouses some suspicion, what happens then? Uh, typically, what happens then is some education about the results on the screen. So you have answered mm-hmm. questions in a manner that indicates that you might be struggling uh, with how you're feeling. Or, you know, we can take specific items that they endorsed on the screen and expand on that and ask more questions about just what's going on, what their experience is, um, what stressors they're feeling, what they're struggling with. And then that will help us as the healthcare professional better target the type of intervention that they might need, whether it be talk therapy or whether they really just need resources or whether their scores are high enough indicating a severe risk that maybe they need to see a psychiatrist more quickly. Would, would Doctor, would medication be brought into the mix uh, if uh, women are identified to be, you know, have a potential problem? So we start to think about medication when the symptoms are severe and impairing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, as Shannon mentioned, you know, when uh, when someone scores high, we do make referrals to either a therapist and or psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Appropriate treatment for depression, especially for someone who's suffering from moderate to severe depression, includes both medication and psychotherapy, not usually just one or the other. Uh, and so what I always try to uh, make sure that moms that we see understand, just coming to see a psychiatrist doesn't mean you've committed to medication. It means that you're, we're going to have a discussion about it, and we'll uh, see whether or not you've been on medicine before, whether it was effective, and whether your symptoms are so severe that medication is indicated. Yeah. Uh, I want to open the phone lines to our listeners because I'm sure there are many questions out there, and we invite your calls if this is a subject uh, you'd like to discuss with our people in the studio here today. 382-8255 is the number. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org. If you'd prefer to send a tweet, we'll take that at STL on air. Marilyn called right from the get-go. She wants to get in, so let's bring her in. Marilyn's calling from St. Louis. You're on the air, Marilyn. Um, thank you so much. Um, I wasn't sure you had said you were going to talk about postpartum depression, and my um, concern was we really needed to know more about the po- postpartum psychosis which is much more serious than the depression. But I think uh, your guests have have covered that quite well, and I just want to say thank you for getting into this. And thank you, uh, Marilyn, for the call. So we've already answered our question, I think. Uh, Doctor, I'll come back to you on this. One thing that uh, people don't generally discuss is that this can be a problem for men as well. Yes, it can. And it's something that we've actually uh, been trying to focus on and have now dedicated information for dads. <clears throat> so uh, while postpartum depression occurs in about 20% of moms, research is indicating it occurs in about 10% of dads, actually. And, you know, when a mom is suffering, dads often try to be the strong support for her and will often ignore their own symptoms. But the symptoms are, are the same in terms of experiencing depression. And we know that uh, caregivers, whether they be the mother or the father, are extremely important for the infant. So if it's the dad that is struggling, we also want to get him help. And we've been uh, caring for dads now for the entirety of, of the service over the past five years. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, and, and looking into this subject and, and reading the things that we've been reading recently and, and over the years, it's really hard to imagine, uh, you know, a mother reaching a stage where she would kill a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just so depressing to think of it in those terms. I think we have to remember that these are brain disorders, and so you need to understand that this is uh, the result of brain dysfunction. So just as uh, we know that when people have 
strokes or seizures, their behavior and their thinking change dramatically, or if you've had the uh, experience of having someone who's had Alzheimer's disease, for instance, and you've seen them start to become paranoid or psychotic, we inherently understand that those are the result of brain disorders. We really need to start incorporating that into our thinking about psychiatric disorders as well. These are brain disorders. So it's not that you know a mom who's functioning well necessarily is having like suddenly thinks, oh, I'm going to kill my child. It is a brain that is dysfunctioning and is taking uh, information from the environment and processing it incorrectly to the point where the mom often will think that she's doing something to protect her child or that the child is suddenly now possessed with, you know, demonic possession or some other really irrational, you know, delusion. So really, these are this is a result of a, a brain disorder. Shannon, are there any cases that you're aware of in, in which men have done harm to their children? Oh, boy. Um, not off the top of my head, but I'm sure. Um, I mean, we do know that men do cause harm to their children as well. I don't as think a result it grabs of, the headlines. As a result um, of this same issue. Oh, for postpartum depression, I have not heard a case or I can't think of one off the top of my head. I can't say that it hasn't happened, but I think it probably gets turned in the headlines in a different in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not one I can think of. Either. Okay, we have to take a break. We'll do that now. Once again, I'll invite, <clears throat> pardon me, listeners to get into the conversation and uh, we'll continue our talk about postpartum depression. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation with Dr. Cynthia Rogers, child psychiatrist at Washington University and expert in perinatal and postnatal depression, also from Washington University, a psychologist, Shannon Lenz. Let's go right to the phones here. Nancy's been waiting, and I want to get her in, so let's call on Nancy from St. Louis. Go ahead. Hello? Yes, go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, so my question is, uh, you guys are targeting the women who respond these questions on the questionnaires asked by pediatricians, by OBGs. Um, what happens when these women answer the questions falsely? Um, how do you identify that these women need help? So if, if you don't mind if I take that question. So at least I can speak for our experience at the Perinatal Behavioral Health Service. So we are embedded in the uh, OB-GYN clinic and also on the postpartum floor, um, and do take community referrals. We don't only just hand someone a piece of paper and have them fill out 10 questions and then walk away. What we do is we actually do spend a good 20 to 30 minutes talking to the to the woman about what's going on. And we do find that some women are very reluctant um, to answer uh, on the questionnaires, and sometimes we get zeros on the questionnaires, and we joke that I wouldn't even score a zero. So sometimes that's a, that's a red flag. But we talk to them about what's going on, what their stresses are, um, how they're feeling about the baby or the pregnancy. And usually um, as we get to know them and talk with them, uh, we're able to get a better sense of their of their experience and their symptoms. And usually at that point, women are often uh, more comfortable sharing with us what's going on. So we don't rely solely on the questionnaires for women that need help. Uh, we do actually uh, talk with them and get a better sense of what's going on. Shannon, I don't want to keep belaboring this particular <laughs> part of it, but um, are, are men screened as well? Um not routinely, not routinely. And I, I think part of that is because oftentimes men are not the identified patient coming in for treatment. It is the pregnant woman or the postpartum woman. 
um, that is coming in for treatment. Also, it is usually the mothers who are bringing their babies to the well-child visits in the postpartum period. So I don't think dads are routinely being screened. However, there's a lot of research and interest in this area, and I think um, people are trying to find ways where we can more routinely screen dads. What about research overall? What's going on? I'm sure it washed you that uh, you're involved in that. Actually, Shannon is our director of research for the perinatal service, so I'll let her talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> I would be on. happy to talk <laughs> about research. Yeah, so we, um, we at WashU are doing a number of different projects in this area. One of them is related to screening. We're trying to figure out ways we could use technology. We're using a text-based platform to see if we can use that technology to be able to screen women more frequently and to see if maybe they're more willing to answer questions via text versus paper and pencil or in the clinic, Mm -hmm. and so that we can engage women in treatment in that way. Um, That's just one of the studies. We're also always looking for ways we can better um, provide services in the clinic, um, changing the types of services that we can provide, making sure that everything is evidence-based, and then taking the questions our clinicians have or our patients have and developing those into research projects as well. Well, technology is the key to so many things these days. And I suppose having someone answer a question via text or uh, email or what have you is a lot more comfortable for them. And, uh, you know, it eliminates some of that stigma that they might feel. That's our hope. And, you know, we've had an experience lately where women have, because of how stressed they're feeling or other things that are going on in their lives, have actually stopped coming to prenatal care. Mm -hmm. But they're still enrolled in our our text-based screening and have answered questions via text, and we're able to then re-engage them into care, and I think that's really a success. Doctor, you wanted to get back to the issue of medications. Apparently something has been left unsaid. (laughs) Well, I think that there is a reluctance from some women of seeking treatment because their fear of of using medicine uh, during pregnancy or during breastfeeding. And so I did just want to address that issue. I think it's important to realize that we only use medicines when indicated, but I think people are thinking that there's only risk from medication and that there's not a risk from the disorders themselves. And research has shown that that's not the case. So when we're thinking about using medicine, we're really comparing the risk of the medicine to the risk of not treating, and those risks can often be high. There are complications to the pregnancy that are increased when you have depression or anxiety during pregnancy, like preterm birth and other um, obstetrical complications, uh, a low birth weight infant. And so when we think about using medicine, we need to to weigh those risks. We also know that uh, if you use a dose of medicine that is too low to effectively treat, because a lot of practitioners are thinking, well, I'll just use a really low dose and then I won't be exposing uh, the baby to too much medicine. But if the woman is still symptomatic, now you're exposing the baby to both any risk of the medicines and the risk uh, of the, the disorder itself. And I should say that a lot of the medicines that we use for depression specifically are very, very low risk. And that's why the um, American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists say that if you have uh, a psychiatric disorder during pregnancy, that the benefits of treatment uh, almost always outweigh the risks of, of using medication. Shannon, I know you're a Ph.D. doctor, yes. but when you're, when you're talking to people, uh, how do you work with the medical doctors uh, to recommend or do you get into that area of recommending medication? Um, Well, I I think it's always best to work in collaboration. I think that's one of the joys of working with the perinatal team is we do have multidisciplinary teams, so I can always refer to the psychiatrist or to the OB provider as well. Our OB providers do prescribe medications, and I can work with them. But I think it's important um, for my patients to have those conversations with the person that's prescribing the medication for them. 
But when again, we have to stress that your patients have have to come to you. I mean, that's the way it has to work. My patients do come to me, and I do feel that I um, can give them some suggestions. I can also help them work through questions to to talk with their doctors about medications, but I do not specifically make medication recommendations to them. Let's take another call. Ashley joins us. And uh, Ashley, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I just wanted to mention that that one of the other big barriers that I found when I was um, struggling with with my postpartum depression and anxiety was really just even just access to care. Um, At the time, I was living in New York, and it, it took a full six months of trying to find a doctor who um, was either available or had appointments or took new patients um, or was willing to to recommend medication for someone who was breastfeeding. It it took that long um, to even find somebody, and it got to the point that I actually had to self-admit into the hospital just to get immediate care. Um, So I'm just wondering um, if there are any steps being taken or anything like that uh, to help provide more ready access to mental health care. Thanks for the call. Would you like to take that, doctor? Yeah, so that is uh, the access issue is one of the reasons why we started the service. So we um, are co-located within the um, OB-GYN clinic at the Washington Medical Center. Um, and access is something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, So there there are a few different barriers to access. So the one that she's talking about is the providers. So we've increased uh, the amount of of providers in this area just by establishing the services. We have three psychiatrists, a nurse practitioner, in addition to uh, having three and now actually four therapists that work with us. So access uh, by increasing providers is really important. I also do education in collaboration with Generate Health, which has started the Perinatal Behavioral Health Initiative that's brought together lots of different uh, community agencies here in St. Louis to increase both screening and, and access to, to treatment. I also try to work with our um, with our residency program, so the psychiatrists that are in training uh, have the opportunity to work with us and get more experience so that we can increase the number of psychiatrists in the community because, unfortunately, what Ashley mentioned is correct. There are some providers in the community who, unfortunately, will either turn pregnant or postpartum women away or take them off their medication because they're, you know, don't feel comfortable treating during pregnancy. So it's really, um, I feel, as part of our mission at the Perinatal Behavioral Services to provide provider education. So that's one issue with access. The, another important issue with access, especially here in Missouri and in states that did not expand Medicaid, is access during the postpartum period to insurance. And so as many people, unfortunately, are aware, uh, a lot of women who receive Medicaid during pregnancy uh, are suddenly cut off 60 days postpartum. Yeah. And so that's a that's something mm-hmm. that I, there's some current legislation in the uh, General Assembly that is hopefully going to address that issue, but that's another major part uh, when it comes to access. Uh, we have a call here that uh, I'm interested in taking. That would be Polly, who is uh, is joining us. Polly, you're on the air. Would you identify yourself, please? My name is Polly Fick, F as in Frank, I-C-K. And you are the mother of Mary Jo Trokey, the, re- the recent episode. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, okay. so, so so sorry for the, the family's you. involvement in all of that, obviously. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, sir. And I thank you so much for having this kind of a show. Can I talk now? Of course. Please, please okay. do. Dr. Rogers, I can't thank you enough for making this aware, making people aware of this. We, we received the article, of the, and I've been making copies of it and sending it to people. And my husband and I would like to start a foundation. I guess my question to you is twofold. Number one, 
was there, is there anything out there like you said it has to be lobbied it has to it's going to come it's got to come from the top and it has to be some sort of a mechanism so that this this kind of thing doesn't happen again um this kind of tragedy does am i make do you understand that is there any kind of to your knowledge any kind of um um uh like a um foundation out there do you know so there are a couple of different organizations. And first, let me just say, I am so very sorry for your loss. You, and if Ryan. anything that, that we have done has provided you any modicum of comfort, I'm very, very happy to hear that. You, you uh, did that, ma'am. Thank you. you. Uh, I, I'm very happy to hear that. And uh, I think that um, I'm very also happy to hear that you are, are wanting to try and, and turn the tragedy into something positive um, in, in honor of your of your family. Uh, Postpartum Support International is a large organization um, that is dedicated to increasing awareness about uh, postpartum mental health issues. So that is certainly uh, one organization um, Mm -hmm. uh, that you can... uh, can, can look into, yeah. yeah. The, okay. Actually, the Missouri March of Dimes currently has really? a, a large initiative uh, That's geared, interesting. Yeah, huh. geared toward um, perinatal mental health. I know people usually think of them as about preventing prematurity. Exactly. Yeah, but exactly. they, they, are, uh, they understand that um, if you want to improve infant outcomes, you really have to address the mom. So that's another organization um, that, uh, that you can uh, certainly uh, give money to or work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, please definitely feel, feel – uh, like you can be in contact with us. Um, we've worked with a lot of local foundations here who've either had uh, children or or women themselves who've experienced um, these symptoms, and uh, we are happy to do anything that we can um, to help wa- raise awareness. Um, okay. So again, I'm I'm just so very sorry for what you all are going yeah, through. Thank you. But but we are committed uh, to try and do everything we can to prevent uh, future tragedies, uh, to get legislation that will help, and to raise awareness so that women feel comfortable uh, coming forward with these symptoms. Polly, thanks so much for your call. And again, certainly condolences. But a, a quick question for you. Has sure. anything been uh, definitive been determined with regard to, to uh, Mary Jo's uh, postpartum situation? Has it been definitively determined that she suffered from postpartum depression? Interesting enough, um, Mary Jo was, I don't know if you're aware of this, Mary Jo was a licensed clinical social worker. Okay, so that was, that entered into the picture, sir. Um, so, you know, um, she, yeah, definitely, in answer to your question, yes. Yes. I, I think what you're asking me, made me make sure I understand the question. Did, Ask me again. Did, did, <laughs> Is it definitive that she was suffering from postpartum depression? Oh, yeah. There's no yeah. doubt. There's no doubt about it. But because of her background, you know, and, and working as a social worker, I, you know, I think she was of the opinion that, you know, she could handle things and, you know, she could take, take this on. Like what you suggested, Dr. Rogers, the new mother syndrome. You know, um, she was breastfeeding. You know, she was trying to juggle all this. The, the pressure that are put on first-time moms, women, is unbelievable. You know, she, she would just return back to work, you know, and she was juggling that. She was juggling, um, you know, all the stress of that. Her husband was very, very supportive. Her husband was right there with her. He was, Matt Schwoke was a wonderful husband. To her. I mean, they had the ideal situation. They, you know, um, she worked for a large pharmaceutical company out of her home, you know. Would that have mattered if maybe she, you know, worked at a regular office? Maybe a, a co-worker would have picked up it. But it's just a series of events that occurred that just, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's we, just a series of things that, you know, of things that happened to her that, 
you know, and, and I think women are, like what, Dr., what you said, Dr. Rogers, that, you know, women don't want to admit that they can't do this, mm-hmm. you know, first time mom, you know, and then breastfeeding and trying to juggle that and all that, all that compounded, you know, and it just was out of her realms. It was out of her realms. Well, unfortunately, Polly, as always, hindsight remains 2020. Thank you. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much, and thank you, Don, for having the show. I watch, we listen to 90.7 all the time. We love your show. There you go. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, We have to put a bottom line on this. Is there something you want to add before we say goodbye, Doctor? I think the most important thing is raising awareness, getting women feeling like comfortable understanding that these are brain disorders this is not a fault of yours this is not that you're a bad mother it's because this is the number one complication of pregnancy suicide is a greater mortality risk from postpartum from pregnancy than preeclampsia or hypertension it is this is a really serious brain disorder that we need as a, a community and as a society to take seriously, make sure women have access to care, and make sure that uh, we are providing the support that they need. With regard to your, uh, your, your need for education and more education out there, I'm going to take a quick call before we say goodbye from Diana, who I think can perform a service perhaps uh, along these lines. Diana, very quickly, please. Hello. Hello. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm a mother who suffered from postpartum psychosis, and I'm developing a podcast called Bipolar and a Baby um, to connect mothers with mental illness. And um, just one issue I want to bring awareness to is um, that many times when I suffer from mania and um, postpartum psychosis and postpartum depression are siblings of this disease. It's a cruel disease. And um, many times I don't think that I need help. So I just want to point that out there, that the sufferer doesn't even realize that they are in need of help. Diana, thank you for the call. Stay on the line so our screener can get your information about this podcast, and we'll put it online, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. Comment? Yeah, Shannon. I mean, I think I, th- I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's why you know our education efforts aren't just for women, but it's for people who care about those women. It's for dads, it's for partners, it's for grandparents, it's for providers. Um, we really want to get that awareness out there, and yeah, um, and, and we also have a, a Facebook page, um, which is uh, uh, if you go to Facebook and just search for the Washington University Perinatal Behavioral Health Service, we provide a lot of education articles, updates on there. Um, and have a website, pbhs.wolstol.edu. And people can always call us also at 314-454-5052 for questions or, or for help. We'll put, and, and not just moms. Not just we moms. have dads and, and grandparents call yeah. in, too. We'll put all of that information. It's a lot of information. Yes. <laughs> we'll put it on our website. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Cynthia Rogers, for being with us, child psychiatrist at Washington University, her university colleague, psychologist Shannon Lenz. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.